From the Catholic Diocese of Sioux Falls Office of Adult Faith Formation, this is the Prairie Rome Companion with Dr. Chris Bergwald. Hello, I'm Dr. Chris Bergwald, and welcome to this special edition of Prairie Rome Companion. In this episode, we will hear part two of Mike Epler's presentation, Jesus, Not Just for Sunday Mornings Anymore. Enjoy the presentation. To kind of summarize, the first section is, um, is really to say, it, it's a statement of the human problem, the human condition. Really to summarize the first, the last hour we've spent together, is to say, this is the human drama, the human, uh, the human condition. And that is, um, if we're honest with ourselves, we realize we are powerless uh, in front of our needs, in front of the fact that we don't make ourselves that we don't make our desire for truth, we don't make our desire for beauty, we don't make our desire for justice or the good or for affection. And so in a certain sense we're powerless because we can't, we can't satisfy ourselves. I was really struck, this priest I've been talking about, uh, Father Giussani, he found a text in Latin once and, and it, was an old, um, it was an old Latin script, you know, from the Middle Ages, the medieval. And uh, it had, a, um, it, it had a, 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 a cue, this beautiful cue. You know, the, 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 the medieval script would draw the big letters, and then they would put a picture in the middle. And in the middle of this cue was uh, uh, Francis of Assisi uh, with his head back and his arms wide. And uh, he was facing the mountains, and the sun was rising over the mountains. And this is what this picture was uh, inside of this. And, 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 and the, the, the words that, that, were, that followed from this cue was, Quomando satis animo est. What will satisfy my heart? What will satisfy my humanity? And, and, and Father Giussani was really struck by that question. What will satisfy my heart? This is the, the summation of, the, of the, the first part of this morning's talk, is there's nothing that will satisfy my heart. Nothing satisfies it. And my son, my 10-year-old son, teaches me this. He teaches me that there is nothing that will satisfy my heart. I love him. I love that kid. I love that kid because he teaches me about my own need. I have to tell you the short story, and he will be mad at me, you know, but I don't care. I tell this story all the time. I told him to take a shower, and he wouldn't do it. I told him to take a shower, and he wouldn't do it. I screamed at him, if you don't take a shower, I'm taking away every privilege that you have in this house. Go take a shower. Because he smelled like a wet dog, you know? So the kid, Mark, God love him, went to the bathroom, stripped down naked, went to the shower, and we had one of, the, we had one of those showers where it was the glass doors, you know what I mean, that slide. And uh, Mark got on the bar on the glass door and naked was doing chin-ups in the bathroom, right? So the next thing I hear is this huge crash. I mean, just glass flying everywhere. It just sounded like an earthquake had hit our house. And I go into the bathroom, and there is Mark, buck naked, standing in the middle of this debris, plaster pulled out of the wall, the bar down, the glass from the two doors shattered across the floor. You know what I mean? He pulled part of the, uh, the caulking off of the tub. Not a scratch on him. And he looked at me and he goes, what's your problem? <laughs> and you know that moment, you know that moment, because you're standing there in front of this kid and all you want to do is beat him, you know what I mean? And you just want to just... And you take that deep breath, and it doesn't help, and you take another deep breath, 
and it doesn't help. And then my wife showed up and she said, oh, please don't beat him. And I said, I'm not going <laughs> to. And I said, I have to leave this house. I have to leave this house right now. And I walked down the street and I walked back and I got to the door and I turned back around and I walked down the street and I walked back and it took me an hour to get back into that house. And he still could not figure out what my problem was. <laughs> I love that kid. I love that kid. That is desire, you know? That is the, the human heart. What will satisfy us? And nothing. Nothing corresponds. It's impossible, this satisfaction, right? I mean, at least this is our experience in, in humanity. Nothing satisfies it. And so we try to build bridges. We try to make satisfaction, but nothing satisfies us. And so the only reasonable position, the only human position in front of this question, what will satisfy my heart, is to pray. That's it. It's the only thing, is to pray. Like uh, I was reminded of that story of Jacob. You know, we were talking about it during the break. In Jacob... It's a prayer that happens when he wrestles with the angel, when he wrestles with the man on the edge of the river. Because, because he says, reveal yourself to me. Show me who you are. Tell me who you are. You know? And Jacob lives even though he has seen the face of God. He lives. This is the Old Testament. Okay. So this is the re-summation of the first half. Now, imagine this. Two kids, one 16, one is 19. The 19-year-old is married. They work in a fishing cooperative. They're in a co-op, they're in a business. Uh, Andrew's older brother, Simon, is kind of the head businessman of the fishing co-op. John is, uh, has got a brother also, and you know they're kind of the younger two. They're restless guys, they have restless hearts. And they take off from work. They're kind of lazy, too, at least from the perspective of, uh, of their brothers. Simon gets a little mad at them, you know, about their, their work. So anyways, John and Andrew uh, take off because they want to answer that question. What will satisfy my heart? And one day, they find this crazy man. He's wearing fur, and he eats bugs. And he's got about 100 people sitting around him. And so the crazy man who eats fur, or excuse me, wears fur and eats bugs, says strange things. And all the people sitting around him are like, oh, <laughs> that has to be interesting because nobody has ever said anything like that before. He says crazy things, you know. So John and Andrew are sitting with the lunatic who wears fur and eats bugs, locusts. And they're sitting in the midst of him, and he's saying strange things, and the hundred or so people who are wrapped around him, okay, why not? Nobody said anything like this for a long time. He must be a prophet. So at a certain point, at a very particular moment, this crazy man turns around and says, everything you've looked for, everything you desire, Everything that will satisfy your heart, what will satisfy my heart? Everything, everything that will satisfy what it is that you long for is that man walking by right there. And there was this guy who just happened to be walking down the road. It's crazy. The guy's just walking by and the madman with fur who ate bugs said, what you long for is that man. What? This is craziness, you know? Nobody moved. 
because he said crazy things on a regular basis. Nobody ever listened, really. I mean, they tried to figure out what he was saying, but nobody moved except those two kids, the 16-year-old and the 19-year-old. And they got up and they took off after the man. It's all there. It's all in John's Gospel after he tells us that the Word became flesh and pitched his tent in our midst. That the Word, or that the reason, Logos, the reason, the divine reason, became a man. Right after that, John tells the story of the day that he and Andrew were playing hooky from work and they ran into the madman. The fur-wearing, bug-eating, crazy man. So anyways, they take off after this guy who's walking by on the road. And, and they find themselves going up to Jericho in the city that's uh, sitting on top of a hill that's right there on this edge. And they get about halfway up this hill and, and they start to feel, feel a little bit stupid. They think this is the dumbest thing that they've ever done. I mean, wouldn't you feel a little crazy? Here you are on the side of a mountain on a Friday afternoon at 4 p.m. You go look it up. It's in John's Gospel. It was Friday at 4 p.m. It's one hour before the Sabbath begins. It's one hour before you cannot work, you cannot prepare food, you cannot do anything. And here these two devout Jews are, stuck on the side of a hill, following a man they've never met or talked to or heard, based on the recommendation of a man who wore fur and ate bugs. They were feeling a little stupid. Huh? It was a little embarrassing. And they were thinking to themselves, what have we gotten ourselves into? Why are we here? So at this very moment, when they are feeling the most uh, tension, if you will, the most difficulty following this guy based on the recommendation of a fur-wearing, bug-eating madman, this man in front of them turns around and he looks at them. And he looks at them in a way that they have never been looked at before. There is a gaze to this man that penetrates them to the very marrow of their bones. This man who turns on them in the middle of this road on the way up to Jericho looks at them in such a way that they have never been looked at before. An exceptional presence. An exceptional man. Nobody. Nobody that they have ever met. Not even the madman who wore fur and ate bugs. Nobody ever looked at him in this way. And that man, God made flesh. The maker of the infinite, of the cosmos, the one who created all of the stars, the earth, the every animal, every plant, everything, especially the desire of their heart. The one who made, the original creator of what it was that they were looking for, looked them in the eye and the word made flesh. God with skin looked at these two and his first words were, what do you want? What are you looking for? What do you desire? This is the original position of God with humanity. Of that unknown X that has a face now. A human face. He loves our freedom so much that He wants to connect with those desires that constitute us. What do you want? What are you searching for? And he loves their freedom. And these two kids, 16 and 19, they look at their feet. I mean, they're embarrassed. I mean, my God, here it is, Friday at 4 o'clock. 
And these are the notes from memory of an 84-year-old man. He remembers precisely the day when he was 16, when he encountered his destiny, when he encountered his heart and what his heart was made for. He remembers that moment. Like I remember the day I met Mariah, or the day I met Riro, or the day I met Chris, you know, or Father Jim. Huh? You remember that moment when a lifelong and true friend encounters you for the first time. So the kids, they're still feeling a little stupid because they'd followed this guy. They look at their feet and they say, Good teacher, Rabbi, where are you staying tonight? Where are you going to sleep tonight? Because they're still concerned with the Sabbath. And Jesus says to them, Come and see. Come and see. This is the Christian formula. This is the description of the Christian event. If you want to describe faith, if you want to say, what is faith? If I want to say the definition of faith, it is exactly at that level. Come and see. Come live with me. Come stay with me. Come and see. And John, I love John. John drives me absolutely crazy with his gospel. It's a beautiful gospel, but it's a drive you crazy gospel because it's a note from memory. And so he assumes that you know things that you don't know, you know? And John, you can go look it up. It's all there in the first chapter of John's Gospel. But he stops. It's Friday at 4.01 p.m. <laughs> 4.01. Come and see. And dang it, the next verse, and he doesn't put a, put a chapter break in there. He doesn't do anything. Just a new paragraph. It's Sunday morning at 9 a.m. And it's Sunday morning at 9 a.m. John and Andrew are running down the other side of the hill, down towards the Sea of Galilee, you know, back down to where the co-op is. And they encounter Simon. And they say, we found the Messiah. We found the one who answered our hearts. We found the Messiah. We found the guy who told us the truth of ourselves. Right? They tell him this. I mean, it's the, it's the supreme uh, statement of faith. We found what we were looking for. We found something that corresponded, something that satisfied us. And before he even opened his mouth the first time, Jesus looked at him and said, Here is Peter, a little rock I'm going to stumble my foot over, over and over again. He named him before he even spoke. And then Nathaniel, God loved Nathaniel, he says, Isn't that guy from, from Nazareth? How can, he, uh, how can he be the Messiah? And Jesus says, in this Jew there is no guile. You know, he really affirms Nathaniel. And then he says to Nathaniel, he says, uh, 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 he says uh, I saw you even before you saw me. I saw you standing by that tree. And Nathaniel says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, just hold on. You, that's the least of the things you will see out of me. You go look it up. It's all in there. The, the notes from memory of this old man who remembers that decisive day when he was 16. What I want to know, what really strikes me, is what the heck happened between Friday at 4.01 p.m. and Sunday morning at 9 a.m. that these two guys were able to say, we found him. What happened? What did he do? I mean, did he fix food in a particular way? How did he move? What kind of accent did he have? And I don't mean like, hi y'all, how's your mom and them kind of accent. I mean, what words did he emphasize? What, what ways of looking at things did he really draw their attention to? 
What was it that, that the master was showing these two young guys that was so exceptional, so incredible, that they, they, they immediately said, we have found what we've been looking for. It was this exceptional presence. That's what satisfies. And we see in the Gospels, over and over and over again, with these, with these same kids, John and Andrew and Peter and Thaddeus and, uh, and Jude uh, with Bartholomew, James, lesser and greater, all of them. We see in these circle of friends, these great friends, over and over again, Jesus did not kill. He did not reduce or flatten their heart. He blew them wide open. Over and over again, they would see Jesus and, and the fact that he was beauty, beauty in, in human form, and Jesus constantly made them want more beauty. They would see him and he would tell the truth and every time they were with him, they would want more truth. And he would be with them and Jesus was perfect justice. He is perfect justice. And every time they were with him, they'd want justice even more intensely than they'd ever been before. Every time they were with the master, there was this satisfaction and a lack because they made him want more. He made them want more. Does that make sense? Does that really make sense? The more they were with them, the more they wanted to be with them. And there was, this, there was this really beautiful relationship that they established. Look, you go back and read Luke's Gospel or, or, or uh, Matthew's Gospel, and, and at, at the end of every miracle, at the end of every lesson, uh, uh, Luke and Matthew write, and they believed in Him. And they believed in Him. It starts with the wedding feast at Cana. And they believed in Him. And, and, and you say to yourself, well, then they believe in him last time? But every time they went to see him, it says, and they believed in him. Something more. Because he kept hitting, he kept responding to, he kept opening them up at the level of their heart. He kept blowing them wide open. And they were confused by this. This is a lot. This is uh, almost too much. This, if we go back and we read the Gospels, if we really look at these stories, it is one drama after another, one dramatic moment after another of the way that this man, this man who knew how to play baseball, if I can use that metaphor, kept opening people up. One of my favorite, one of my favorite descriptions of this uh, event, of this fact, of the encounter with Jesus was written by uh, John Paul the, the Great. Uh, fantastic, fantastic man. A great priest, a great pastor, a great pope. John Paul the Great, uh, in, in, in the text Ecclesia in America, the church in, in America, wrote this beautiful description where he said, and it's scandalous almost, uh, the way he wrote it, but it really is beautiful. John Paul the Great said, Before she even knew he was there, Jesus saw the woman at the well, and he, and he was attracted to her. He was deeply attracted to her. Huh? He was struck by her heart. He was moved by her heart. And so he moves towards this woman. And think about it. I mean, it's an interesting story. It's a fascinating story, the, the woman at the well, because she doesn't go to the well to get the water in the morning when all the other women go to the well. Right? She goes in the midday when she doesn't have to run into the other women. 
<laughs> because she's a bit of a scandal in the city that she lives in. She's been married five times, and the man she's with is not her husband. So she's a scandal. He knows this. He knows she's a scandal. He knows she's a scandal because that's why she's uh, there at noon at this well. But he falls, uh, he finds himself attracted to her. He finds himself interested in her. This is the method of the infinite. This is the method of God. God is attracted to the lack within us. God is attracted, Christ is attracted to, the, to this need within us. And he sees her, and he's attracted to her lack. He's attracted to her need. And there's this beautiful exchange. He goes to her, he says, give me a glass of water or a drink of water. And she says, hey, you know, I don't have a bucket that's deep enough for this. And, and then he really takes it deep on her and he says, look, he says, I can satisfy what you're looking for. And she says, what? How can you do that? Because she still thinks he's talking about the water. And uh, he says, look, he says, I've got water that will take care of, that will satisfy this heart of yours that's searching for an answer and looking for it in all these different men. <laughs> And he says, I'm the man that you've been waiting for. And he tells her this. He's very clear with her. I am the one you've been waiting for, that you've been searching for all of your life. And what does she do? She goes back into town to the very women that, that are scandalized by her. And she says to them, I found a man who told me the truth of myself. It's what he does. It's right there. It's right there in the gospel. I found a man who told me the truth of myself. He blew my heart open. He's the one that I was waiting for. Of all those men, the five men and the one that she's living with, of all those men, the one she was waiting for was that man. And you know what he did? He didn't, he didn't kill her desire. He didn't reduce it. He didn't uh, smother it. He blew it open. So she had to run and tell everybody uh, in the town, I found the one who told me the truth of myself. Or, and I have this experience, Zacchaeus. Do you know Zacchaeus? I love Zacchaeus. Eh? The little, fat, short, bald-headed mafioso of Jericho. He's a mafia boss, right? I mean, he is. He really is. This guy is the most detestable of them all. And this is a very dramatic moment. I mean, it's a really dramatic encounter that goes on in this moment. Because there's two things that are going on. Two circumstances that are happening side by side. One is, you've got Zacchaeus, who is, he's a tax collector, which means he's a Jew. But he's collecting the money from uh, all the little tax collectors who are extorting, more or less, everybody for their money. Here's what they would do with the tax collection. The, the, the local tax collector, the local guy, knew you. He knew your family. He knew how much money you had. He knew your value. He knew your property. And then he squeezed you as hard as he could to get all the, shaking all the excess money out of you. And then what Zacchaeus did was he gathered all those guys together and he shook them down and he got his part. So he had a lot of money. It was a, it was a kickback scheme. I mean, he really had control over Jericho, all Zacchaeus did. And so everybody in Jericho hated Zacchaeus and they hated his friends. Hated them. Hated them. And according to Jewish law, they would get theirs, let me tell you. Because of the way they treated the poor and because of the way they treated their people, Zacchaeus and his friends would get their just desserts. There would be justice one day in heaven. This is the way the people of Jericho looked at those guys. So, this guy... Who is the Messiah, or at least they heard he was, was coming to town. 
And so a crowd goes to the edge of town to meet this guy. And, and about 400 people, 500 people, remember we were there, it was a great moment, 400, 500 people wrap around this guy who people say is the Messiah, the one who was promised, and they, they kind of follow him. He's walking through town and they follow him and he, he comes to the center of Jericho. Well, here comes Zacchaeus, the mafioso. And the drama of this whole thing is, is everybody is looking at him and they don't want to let him next to the Messiah. So everybody is blocking him out. So he's running around the outside of this 400 person crowd and he can't get in. Nobody will let him in. They're kind of elbowing him. They're keeping him on the outside. And then Zacchaeus, because he really wants to meet this man, because the desire of his heart is even greater than his sin. The longing of his heart, the need for satisfaction of his heart, even is more powerful than his sinfulness. This is very important. Causes him to climb a tree. And this is the drama, because the crowd sees Zacchaeus up in this tree, and they, and they look at the Messiah, and this is the moment. This is the moment of justice. Real justice, isn't it? And, uh, and they, see, uh, they see this and they say, if this guy really is the Messiah, if it's really the one who is, you know, God with us, you know, if he's really the one who's going to be the lawgiver, then he will uh, put justice down on Zacchaeus. And this crowd is, is, is anticipating. There's this tension in the air. It goes silent. And they're watching this drama. And Jesus, the creator of the universe, the maker of the cosmos, perfect justice, says, Get down out of that tree. I want to come to dinner at your house tonight. And you know what happens? The 400 people dissipate. They go every which direction. No one stays. It's just Jesus and Zacchaeus and a couple of his friends. Zacchaeus' friends and Jesus' friends. There's 20 people there. 30 people at most there. Everybody else leaves. Because it wasn't their idea of what is just. But it proves to us that it's perfect justice, doesn't it? If it's really Christ, if it's really God made flesh, it's mercy. And that's how we know it's God. Because, because God is mercy. And in that moment, Zacchaeus was shown this deep and human mercy. This is how we know. This is how we know it's the Christ. There are many other stories. I mean, I'm sure you have your favorites. And, and, and we can highlight the drama of these encounters these moments when human beings butted up against or came up close to the creator of these needs within them. But I have to say to you, at a certain point, these guys that were hanging out with him, these, these friends of his who were staying with him, at a certain point, they started asking among themselves, who is this guy? Who is he? And they ask him, who are you? And Jesus turns the question back on them and he says, who do people say I am? And they say, well, you're John the Baptist coming back from the dead, right? Because John had lost his head over a minor dispute with the local authorities. They say, you are Elijah, you are Elisha, you are the great prophets that have returned. And it's great because he looks at him and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, because he is the most representative of all of us, isn't he? He is the one who understands all of us the best. Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the one who we have waited for. You are the only one who speaks to me in this way. You are the only one who opens my heart. 
It's beautiful. It's a beautiful moment. I have to tell you this great story. Uh, Father Giazzani always told this story. And um, it goes like this. It, it, at, a, at a certain moment in an alpine village in Italy, this remote village, nobody ever went up there, nobody ever left there. Maybe a hundred people lived in this mountain village. Um, hundred, hundred and fifty people. One day, this man and this woman and these two kids showed up in town. And they moved into the house at the very end of the, of the village, at the very end of the little, little area. And they lived there for three years and nobody spoke to them. <laughs> now they're from outside. Who are these people and why did they move here? You know, you got 150 people in a town, you know everybody, they're strangers, we don't talk to them. So day in and day out, the man would come into town and he would, uh, uh, you know, he would buy cigarettes or have a coffee in the, in the bar, in the, in the, the, the gathering place. And uh, no one would speak to him. They'd look at him strangely, dressed funny. Who is this man? And then he would leave. At a certain point, after living there for three years, a cart broke off from a mule and rolled down the middle of the town and hit a kid. The cart hit a kid in the middle of the, of the village. And the wife, the woman of this man, rushed to this kid and started performing uh, medical procedures on him. Well, it turns out, excuse me, it turns out that she was a doctor. And uh, so she started uh, helping this kid and, and really rescued this kid, saved this kid's life because she knew medical knowledge. Well, now they realize, my God, we had a doctor in the village for three years and nobody knew. Nobody knew this was a doctor who lived here. So the next day, the, the man, the husband, went into the, the tobak, the, the bar uh, in, the, in the village. And uh, the oldest man, the most representative man in the bar, he said, he said with his pipe, he said, come here. <laughs> come here and sit down. Have a seat right here. And he said, uh, he said uh, how did your wife know that? And the guy said, well, my wife's a doctor. You know? And uh, he said, oh, okay. And, the, and, and they started to build this friendship. And then over time, each day, this man would come into the, into the bar to have a coffee, you know, to visit, to play cards. And he would tell them fascinating things about the Tierra del Fuego. He would tell them about the, the, the Basque Hills. He would tell them about Granada and Madrid and Barcelona. He would tell them about, you know, uh, the New World, about, uh, about Brazil and about uh, Colombia and about Latin America and the Caribbean. Tell him all these fascinating things. And, and they, they paid attention to everything that he said because he spoke with this authority. He spoke with this clarity. He knew what he was talking about and he was describing things that they had never seen, had never heard of before, but they knew it was true because the way he told it, the, the truth of the way he told it. At a certain point, after another two or three years of this man telling these stories and, and sharing his life in this way, the old man, again, the most representative of the group, said to him, Who are you? Because nobody talks like you. Nobody has ever talked to me like this. And the guy sitting there in front of them said, I will tell you who I am, but you cannot reveal it to anyone else. Because if anyone knows, the authorities will come and they will take me away. And they said, We agree. And he said, I am the king of Portugal in exile. And this place is the place that we have come to get away from the authorities so that they will not execute us. And they believed him. They believed him when he said it. Because he knew only those things that the king of Portugal in exile would know. And the next day, the authorities showed up and they took him away. 
because it bothered the mayor of the village that there was one who was greater than him. How do we recognize that it's Christ? How do we recognize that it is Jesus, the Master, the Word made flesh, the infinite, the creator of the cosmos with skin, <laughs> a human being? In fact, this is the question that we ask today, because here we are, 2,000 years later, after this event, and we have to ask ourselves, who are you? Who are you? Is it possible that we can encounter Christ today in the exact same way that John did, that Andrew did, that that Samaritan woman did, that Zacchaeus did, that Martha and Mary did, that Lazarus did, that Peter did? Can we encounter that man, Mary Magdalene? Can we today encounter that man in the exact same way? Is it possible? Is it possible for us to meet him? And we have to be careful about this because we don't want to be with Jim Jones, you know? We don't want to find a, a lunatic. We don't want to be duped by somebody who says that they are an answer to us, but they're no answer. We have to be very careful about that. We have to verify these things and see if they're true. For me, and now this is back to the experience. For me, I met a man. I met an incredible man. In my life, I was looking for something. I was unsatisfied and intense because my son Mark is me. <laughs> I, am, I am Mark. I'm a little more dangerous because uh, I'm a little older. <laughs> I have more tools at my disposal with which to destroy things. I, at a certain point in my life, was looking for an answer. And at a certain moment, at a particular moment, at a very precise moment, unforeseen and unplanned, I didn't predict that moment, I ran into a big, huge, fat, chain-smoking Puerto Rican priest. <laughs> this enormous priest. And this priest was offending everyone around him. And he was saying things that I had never heard before. It was at the University of Notre Dame. I can tell you the place. It was November 12th in the year 2000, Hesburgh Hall at the University of Notre Dame. I know it. I know the moment. And I had gone to listen to this lecture about the religious sense, which is a fancy word for the heart, <laughs> the definition of the heart. And this big Puerto Rican priest offended the woman on the table with him, Catherine Tillman. I remember the moment, and she's a great woman. She's a great woman, a great scholar on uh, Cardinal Newman, one of the greatest scholars on Cardinal Newman in the world. And, and, and he had offended her because he said, this is the face of the church, two Hispanics, a few priests, and a woman. And, and, and she really was offended by the way that he had said it, and so she started yelling at him, and then he lit a cigarette, and then the president of, Hes of uh, Notre Dame turned to him and said, Father, this is a non-smoking facility. And the Puerto Rican priest said, I have a dispensation from the Pope. And he kept smoking the cigarette right there in the middle of Hesburgh Hall. And I thought to myself, who in America would smoke a cigarette in the middle of this brand new facility? Who is this man? You know? It's fascinating to me. And would say it like that. Would break the rules in that way. 
Anyways, he sought me out. This man found me. And he set me down, I remember it clearly, he set me down on a radiator outside one of the doors, right outside of Hesburgh Hall. And we sat on this heater, this register, between the two glass doors, you know, and it's snowing like crazy outside and it's freezing cold out there. And he looked at me and the first words of this encounter, my incredible journey that I'm on with this man, he looked at me and he said to me, who are your people? I remember it clearly. Who are your people? And, and I have to be honest with you, for me personally, as a human being, me, Mike, uh, I come from a people, Southwest Indiana, German Catholics. <laughs> I come from a place, and I know this place, and I know these people, and nobody, nobody in the American church at the level of youth ministry or catechesis or any of this other stuff cared about my people. Nobody. They always told me about what I should tell my people. They always told me what the rules were, or they always told me what the, the catechesis was, or they always told me all the answers to everything. But nobody asked me about the people that I belong to. And so this big, law-breaking, cigarette-smoking Puerto Rican priest looks at me and he says to me, Who are your people? And I was so struck by that question. Because it was free. It was so free. And I said, well, I come from St. Bernard Snake Run, and Snake Run is population 150 people, and my, parents are or my, my grandparents are buried in the cemetery right next to the church down the center, and, and, and we're German, and we're Irish, and we're, we're rural, and it's flat, and it's beautiful, and, and I started going on and on and on about the people that I belong to. The people that you belong to. Huh? You are a people. And he asked me this question, and I was so moved by it. I was so struck by this meeting of this fleshly, fat Puerto Rican priest, you know? Nobody ever talked to me in that way. And in that moment, my heart went just like this. It blew it wide open. Nobody ever talked to me like that before. And the whole way home, it was incredible. I, I took with me four young adults, four 20-somethings. Two of them are married to each other now. Having children, good for them, you know? Uh, one of them is a great dear friend of mine, Phil. Another one is uh, Sarah, and she's up in Jasper, Indiana. These are my friends, you know? This is, this is seven years ago, eight years ago. These, these friends on the way home, we started singing, you know? We never sang before. We started singing, and we were listening to this music, and uh, our tire went flat on the Indiana toll road, the 8090 toll road right outside of South Bend, and it's snowing like crazy, and semis are coming past, and we're laughing. We're so happy. There was this deep joy among us, because we'd met something incredible, this incredible presence that we had never met in that way before. Something incredible happened to us. And, 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 and we were so happy. And the state trooper pulled up and he thought we were drunk. You know? Because how can you be happy with a flat tire on the 8090 toll road? So he's looking in our glove or in our trunk and he's sniffing us and everybody's sober. And you know, and he just he couldn't figure out why we were so happy. Because we meant something. And I have to admit, it's the same joy I felt when I met Mariah for the first time. It was the same kind of happiness. And I celebrate, a, I live a sacrament with her. The great thing about Jesus is that Jesus has no taste in friends. 
He does not know how to pick people. This is the one thing I have learned from the Master over the years. Jesus does not know how to choose anyone. If I were in charge, if I were the one who chose people, I wouldn't choose anybody that he chooses. Huh? Do you know this to be true? You know, he always chooses the most uh, crazy people. He always chooses the people with wide open hearts who've been married five times. You know, they've been married five times and are living with somebody. He always chooses people that are tax collectors and, and thugs and thieves. He chooses people that are screwed up. And he chooses people that desire and long and want an answer to their heart. I would never choose any of those people. But the adventure that I have found, and, and, and I'm talking about encounter from my experience, is the people he chooses are the most exciting and fascinating people I have ever met in my entire life. I am always fascinated and amazed by the people who Jesus chooses to be his disciples. And I don't choose them. The encounter with Christ today, at this moment, is the church. It's the church. She is the flesh and the blood of the man who has taught us how to play this game. Sacramentally, yes, to be sure, this is the guarantee that he has given us throughout all of time in the, in the body and the blood, in, 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 in the decisiveness of water and oil, in the, in, the, in the concreteness, in the humanity of laying on of hands and of joining hands together, both those social sacraments and it being with us at the moment that we die in the preparation for that death. Yes, 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 to be sure, to be sure. But also in the fleshliness, in the humanity of looking at you in your face. When I see you, as I'm standing here at this moment, I realize the beauty of, of Jesus' affection for the human. He chose you. You would not be here this morning if He had not chosen you. And we know this to be true in a concrete way, in a physical way, in a human way, because we are church. We are church. Church for us is the fact that I want to come see you. I want to see your face. I want to be with you. I want to eat a meal with you. I desire to attach myself to you. I can't live without you. Andrew came home. Andrew, the night he met Jesus, that Sunday night, he went home and his wife was so mad at him. Can you imagine? He just took off. He was at work on Friday. He's been gone all day Saturday. Can you imagine? You know what I mean? He comes to the door. She's like, where you been? Where you been? You been out catting around? You know what I mean? She's angry. She's furious with him. You know, we've only been married a few months and here you are taking off for the weekend and you didn't tell me where you went. And she's furious with him. But here's Andrew on the other side of that. Andrew is like, I met the most incredible person of my life. I met the most decisive person in my entire life. And he holds her. He holds her in a way that she has never been held before. And he starts sobbing. He starts sobbing because he has met this incredible person who now he is giving to his wife. Who he loves. He loves that woman. He loves her. And he starts sobbing, and now she's really feeling worried, because who is this person that you've met is making you sob in my arms? And he says, I have met the man who knows the truth of my heart. And now she's really a little frightened by this. But he loves her more. He loves her more intensely. He loves her in a correct position. It's not a violence between the two of them. 
It's a true affection between the two of them. Because his heart is made by this other who responded to it, and now he's responding to her. And you know what? They go to bed that night. And the next morning at 5 a.m., she's lying there on her back, and she's snoring a little bit. <laughs> you know? And he's looking at the ceiling, and he's thinking to himself, i got to go find that man again. i got to go be with that man. I can't live without that man, that incredible man. I miss that man. And he rolls out of bed, and he leaves her there snoring a little bit. And he takes off into the street at 5.30 in the morning, and he runs into John, and he says, let's go find him again. And they do. Every day, they go find that man, and then they come home. And they go find that man, and then they come home. This is our description of faith for today. This is it. This is our life in front of this incredible presence. Our hearts were blown open by this man. Our hearts were shaken to their core by this man. In the way that we celebrate the sacraments, in the way that we encountered him, perhaps in Curcio, perhaps in uh, Light of Christ, perhaps in a Marriage Encounter, perhaps in the way that we met our wife or our husband for the first time. I don't know what your particular encounter with Christ was, but you would not be here this morning if you had not met that man, that incredible man, that exceptional presence that, that took a hold of you and widened you out, opened you up. And so we get up in the morning and we go to work. Think about Andrew. Andrew goes back to work and because he met that man, he looks at his customers differently, doesn't he? Because he knows the truth of himself, now he knows the truth of his customers. So it's not a matter of a morality in the sense of he doesn't cheat them or rip them off when he sells them fish, but he knows their humanity. He knows what they're made for. He knows, he knows their destiny. When he fishes, his fishing takes on a new meaning and a new value. His fishing takes on a real value because he knows the creator of the fish. He knows the meaning of the fish that he's catching. He knows the meaning of the nets that he's using. He knows the meaning of the boat that he's in. When Andrew is with his wife, he knows the meaning of his wife because he met that incredible man. This is what the church gives us because the church is Christ with flesh today. The church is the possibility, the, the possibility of an encounter with that man today. The church promises us this. She promises us this. And so for us, we can go to our workplace where the lathe is now an altar. Where my desk is now an altar. Where the bed where that person is dying or is wounded or is injured in the hospital is now an altar. In this way, all of the circumstances of my life, nothing, nothing is missed. Everything is fascinating. Everything in front of me is interesting because that man has shown me the meaning of everything. He shows me the value of everything. I could never hurt another human being. Not because it's a rule. I'm not capable of rules. I'm sorry. It's not my temperament. I'm like Mark. <laughs> you know, I'm not possible for that. But I find myself being moral. I find myself loving humanity, loving people, because that's how the Master taught me. That's how the church taught me to look at people. The encounter with Jesus is absolutely decisive. It's decisive in my life. 
Before I met him, I, I longed for him. After I met him, I longed for him even more. I searched for him even more and with more intensity. Even to the point of looking for him in a big, fat, Puerto Rican, chain-smoking priest. Nothing. Nothing escapes our gaze. Nothing escapes what we look at. We pay attention to everything because we have met that man. And because of this, we hold our wife, we hold our husband, we hold our children in a new way. Nothing gets past us because it is the Master, it is Jesus, it is Christ who opened us up. Now, we have a few moments to do some work. Again, back to you. Back to, back to work. <laughs> Get back to work. This afternoon, Dr. Barstad is going to open us up in the relationship with our children, in the relationship with our families, uh, in the experience of living together in, in the, most, the most clearest form of church, the domestic church, uh, the church of the, of the household. But the parish life also, we come together as parish. Th this morning, and I want to use the next uh, 18 minutes well, let's go until noon, let's work until noon. Hit the restroom, get you a refreshment, what have you. But, but for our tables is, is, what does the encounter look like for, uh, for me? What's my experience in front of this? This, uh, this event, this beautiful thing. Secondly, is it possible to live, and I'm asking you, is it possible to live this encounter in my workplace with my spouse, with my children, with my friends? Is it possible to live that opening of the heart? I'm not talking about you know, saying Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I'm saying, I'm saying is it possible that my heart can be blown open. Truth, justice, beauty, the good. Can I do that in my work, with my spouse, with my children, uh, in the community, whatever? You know, there's, there's multiple ways. You, your experience is the most important thing. That's the second question. The third is, is what I'm saying true? Does it correspond? Does it match? Does it respond to, to what it is that your original position is? And then, two questions. One or two questions that we can take for this afternoon's assembly. So three, three things for you to work on, three specific things, and then come up with a question or two among your table for me and, uh, and Dr. Barstead.